The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, Revelation 21. And we're going to start reading at verse 9. We spent about four weeks or so in 1 through 8. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the 12, at the gates, 12 angels and the names of them were written on them and which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Then one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards according to human measurement and angelic measurement. The material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed." And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bond servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. 
and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Lord, we pray you'd open your word to us tonight and that you would thrill our souls with the beauty of that which is to come. In Christ's name, amen. So one of the things that we've said repeatedly is that the last things are like the first. And in order to understand what's happening in Revelation 21 and 22, you have to go back to the Garden of Eden. (laughs) And in fact, Eden itself was a garden temple. We looked at that actually as we studied Genesis years ago. Um, you look at, uh, we, we look at it, we, we hear garden and just think agricultural stuff. Um, but the fact is, is that there are descriptions in Eden uh, in terms of the materials, the trees, the stones, the water, all of it, which actually then ends up being reflected in the tabernacle and then also in the temple. So in a sense, the tabernacle is, uh, is a picture of Eden. The temple is a picture of Eden. Um, if you wonder why there's, there's trees and pomegranates and all of that in the temple, it's because it's a reflection of Eden. And so Eden is this garden temple. And of course, what makes it a temple is that you have Adam, who's been given priestly uh, responsibilities, by the way, to cultivate, he's to cultivate and guard the garden temple, which, by the way, is going to be huge in just a minute in this text. And he is to, he has, he has communion with God there, and God walks in the cool of the garden, uh, walks in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day. And so there's this communion that God has with his people in that garden temple. And so not only is Eden a garden temple, but Eden also, you could say, had, um, had an eschatological goal, right? So in other words, Eden wasn't an end in itself. What Adam and Eve were supposed to do is they were supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, they were actually to take dominion over all the earth. What, what, in a sense, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to actually extend that garden temple throughout the entire earth. Okay? So that the entire earth would not only be filled with image bearers, but image bearers who worshiped and served the living God. Okay? And so you have this, this temple imagery right there at the beginning. And of course... If, if Adam and Eve's eschatological goal was to actually fill the earth with image bearers or, put it another way, fill the earth with the glory of the Lord or, to put it another way, fill the earth with God's presence, right? Um, of course, they failed in that eschatological goal. And then Israel comes along and Israel has a tabernacle. What's, what's the heart of the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies. Then a temple is built. What's the heart of the temple? The Holy of Holies, right? And the Holy of Holies, of course, ends up representing the very presence of God in the midst of the people. 
And um, in a sense, <clears throat> um, the Holy of Holies, uh, both in its uh, presence in the tabernacle and then later the temple, uh, is, is in a sense a reflection of what Eden was. And of course, what was Israel supposed to do? In a real sense, Israel was supposed to, as it were, spread that, uh, the glory of the Lord throughout the earth. And so even the, the uh, tabernacle and the temple were constructed of costly materials. What was the Holy of Holies covered with? Pure gold. Okay. What, was, what was all throughout the temple? Pure gold. And did they just um, put their heads together, hire a Jewish architect, and figure out how they were going to build these things? No, they, they were given very specific instruction. In fact, the dimensions of everything is, is, is actually laid out. By the way, the writer to the Hebrews picks up on that and says the reason why those specific instructions were given is because what was on earth was going to reflect what was already in heaven. <clears throat> so um, let me just tell you that um, this, is, this is an amazing book. Uh, it's called uh, The Temple and the Church's Mission, A Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God by Greg Beale. And uh, I've about worn it out over the years. And uh, by the way, if you want a shorter version, God dwells among us, expanding Eden to the ends of the earth. So you can tell it's, this is a little shorter. But um, pretty much covers the same material. But Greg Beale makes this this these statements and they're just they're just worth reading to you as we jump into the new Jerusalem. He says Adam's purpose in that first garden temple was to expand its boundaries until it circumscribed the earth so that the earth would be completely filled with God's glorious presence. Adam's failure led in time to the reestablishment of the tabernacle and temple in Israel. Both were patterned after the model of Eden and were constructed to symbolize the entire cosmos in order to signify that Israel's purpose as a corporate Adam was to extend its borders by faithfully obeying God and spreading his glorious presence throughout the earth. Revelation 21 to 22 symbolically represents the entire new cosmos because that was the goal of God's temple building process throughout sacred history. Chapters 21 to 22 form the consummation of the prophetic hope of an end-time universal temple, which Revelation 11 portrays as having begun as advancing to fill the whole earth during this age in Christ and his church. Both Revelation 11 and 21 and 22 indicate various facets of the fulfillment of Ezekiel 40 to 48, uh, a prophecy of the temple. The new heavens and new earth are described as a temple because God's goal of universally expanding the temple of his glorious presence will come to pass. Everything of which the Old Testament temples were typologically symbolic as recapitulated and escalated Garden of Eden and whole cosmos will finally be materialized. In other words, what God, what God did in, in Eden... And what God's intention was in Eden and what Adam and Eve's eschatological goal was in Eden is in fact going to be fulfilled one day. There is, there is, there is no failure 
in God's plan. God will consummate that, um, that garden temple, but he's going to do it in a way that surpasses anything that Eden could have ever been. And so, um, as I mentioned, the tabernacle, the temple, end up having these strong Edenic features. Those features end up being then repeated in the New Jerusalem. And so Eden, as a garden temple, was, in a sense, the holy of holies, right? And so um, the New Jerusalem then, think of it this way. The New Jerusalem is one massive cosmic, by cosmic, I mean filling the cosmos, holy of holies. That's what the New Jerusalem is. It is this massive holy of holies. And of course, this holy of holies is going to be better than the original holy of holies in the tabernacle and the temple. Who, who could actually go and uh, approach the holy of holies in the tabernacle? So in one sense, you could say nobody, and that was true, except for the high priest who could enter in once a year. So there was this, there was this, in a sense, a blockade. There is a curtain. There is a veil. You don't go in there. That's the immediate presence of God. You don't have access. The temple's built. Same thing. You don't have access. And now, of course, with the death of Jesus and the, the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom, he's actually given us access. But one of these days, as, as in a sense, the Holy of Holies fills the entire earth, all of God's people who are priests to God will have immediate access into the very presence of God and the Lamb. So again, the, the, these, these, these magnificent movements from Old Testament to New Testament, ultimately to consummation, should be striking to us. So just a, a summary, the new creation, heavens, new heavens, new earth, is the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the new creation. That's not a secret, All the way back in Isaiah 65, listen carefully to what the prophet said. God says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That's 65, 17. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And so God says, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And what is that going to be? It's going to be Jerusalem, right? And so in a sense, in that new creation, in the new Jerusalem, that covenant promise, and, and this, is, this is the heart of it. Okay? God has always promised by covenant, right? So, by, so, so covenant, covenant is, um, is an act of condescending grace, okay? So God, you, you don't have to be in covenant with God. God is under no obligation to enter into covenant with you. So when God, God creates us as covenantal beings, 
And what happens is God then condescends. It's an act of grace for him to actually initiate covenant. And what, what is the heart of that covenant? I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll dwell in the midst of you, right? And so how many times do you have that promise throughout the Old Testament? And so at the end of Leviticus, moreover, Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, moreover, I'll make my dwelling among you. I'm going to make my dwelling among you. The tabernacle's already been built. I'm going to make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. So, we don't want to recreate the fiasco of last week, but let me just ask you, all right, when you hear the language, I will walk among you, okay, that should that should strike a note in your brain that goes back to another text. Okay? So I've told you a hundred times, when, you, when you're reading the New Testament, and actually you read anywhere in the Bible, but especially the New Testament, and you hear these, these little notes of Old Testament or, if you will, previous texts, right? Those notes are just like the old game show, name that tune. I can name that tune in three notes and you have the three notes that are played and then what do you do? Then the whole tune comes back, right? So when God says, and I will walk among you, name that tune. Did you say Joshua 14? Okay. Okay, but I'm talking about a previous Adam in the garden, Adam in the garden, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, all right? So when you hear God telling his people, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, I'm going to dwell among you, my soul is not going to reject you, I'm going to walk among you, right? This is obviously uh, an anthropomorphism, but it ends up, it ends up coming to at least um, initial fulfillment in John 1.14, not Joshua 14, but John 1.14. I know that's what you said, Steve. Um, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, all right? And so here is this, here is this magnificent covenant promise. You're going to be my people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk among you. There's going, to be a, there's going to be a communion between us. Well, what's interesting is that that very covenant language ends up being echoed again in Ezekiel 37. And what's really close to Ezekiel 37? If you were to say Ezekiel 36, you'd be right. <laughs> right? 37, 36. So 36, new covenant, 37, valley of dry bones, 38, 39, the final battle, Gog and Magog, 40 to 48, new temple, right? So right at the end, Ezekiel 37, we read these words, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. 
and I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. What's the significance of God's sanctuary? It's where he dwells. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And so that that re- the, the, the consummation, if you will, of that covenant promise um, ends up being where? In the new Jerusalem. So the very temple vision of Ezekiel 40 to 48 is the vision of, I'm going to say, a city temple, not a garden temple, which is the new creation, which is located on the mountain of God. <laughs> All right. By the way, mountain is not accidental. Okay. When Ezekiel gets the uh, temple vision, what does the spirit do? The spirit takes him up to a great mountain to show him. Guess what is going to happen to John? He's going to be taken by the spirit to a great mountain. Why a mountain? Well, because Isaiah 2, Isaiah 4, Micah 5, and on and on the prophets go, talking about the mountain of the house of the Lord, right? So in a sense, the, the, so Mount Zion, so it is a mountain, right? And so it's the dwelling place of God. And so Ezekiel 40 and verse 2, in the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel, set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. Revelation 21.10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so, as we get into this text in terms of the new Jerusalem, what we're looking at is, um, is we're looking at the consummation of, of Eden. We're looking at the consummation of the tabernacle. We're looking at the consummation of the temple. We're looking at the consummation of the incarnation. We're looking at the eternal dwelling place of God with his people forever and ever in the new Jerusalem. So what's going to happen in uh, from 20, uh, 21.9 through 22.5, which we read is it's going to, in a sense, recapitulate everything that's already been said in 21, 1 through 8. So you have a bride in 21, 2, and then, of course, the bride again, uh, described for us in 9 through 11. You have the tabernacle, right, 21, 3. Then you've got the tabernacle again in 21, 22 to 24. You got the water of life, 21, 6, water of life again uh, in 22, 1. And, of course, the judgment, those who are outside, 21, 8, and then that same judgment. And it's what's interesting is that John is... John is um, is concerned, so it, it so it's he says it twice of who actually are outside right? those that that don't get into the new Jerusalem. Right? So John wants to make it clear that not everybody is in the new Jerusalem. Not everybody's a part of the new Jerusalem. There are going to be those that are actually excluded. And of course, what happened to you, um, if, you were, if you were an Old Testament Israelite, there was a, um, there was a play on words. If you, if you committed uh, apostasy, if you 
committed the sin of the high hand, you were actually cut off from your people. And you were cut off from the land. No place for you in the land. You were an outsider. And so the new Jerusalem is going to have those uh, outsiders as well. All right. So verse 9 is fantastic. He says this angel uh, who was responsible for the seven plagues and so forth. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now right away, if you just flip over just to chapter 17... Just notice the, the similarity in language. 17.1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And then uh, verse three, and he carried me away in the spirit into, the wil- into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and 10 horns. And so you can see actually the parallel when you get to 21.9, an angel actually says now to John, come here and I'm not gonna show you a harlot. I'm gonna show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so what you have again is that contrast between the harlot, Babylon, and the true bride. And so just remember, as you read through Revelation, you have, you have a, a counterfeit savior, a counterfeit trinity. You have, you have a beast and you have a true lamb, right? And so you have this, um, this, this great contrast throughout. And so now, after John had spent chapters 17 and 18 giving us a sordid description of the harlot of Babylon, which he was carried away and shown by the angel, now the angel says, do you want to see the, the bride, the wife of the lamb? Of course, you know who the bride is, right? That's it's the church. Right? Is there any doubt? The wife of the lamb, the true bride, the pure bride, the bride that has been presented without spot and wrinkle, clothed in white, glorious wedding day. And um, so John's excited, I think, right? <laughs> John's like, I love weddings. Of course I want to see the bride, right? And uh, that's one of the, the best things about weddings is getting to see the bride. You know, I go over and the guys are getting dressed. Who cares? The, yeah, you look good in a black thing, black tuxedo. I want to see the bride, Right? I want to see the bride. And so then the spirit carries John away to this great and high mountain. So is it an accident that he's taken up to a mountain? The answer is no. Why? Because the mountain is actually the dwelling place of God. And so the spirit takes him away. By the way, that language of the spirit carrying me away is is repeated throughout the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is continually carried away by the Spirit 
and given visions. And so he goes up on this great and high mountain, already mentioned Isaiah 2, Isaiah 4, Isaiah 25, Micah 5. So the idea of this great and high mountain, this is uh, the the dwelling place of God. And so now he's going to anticipate looking at the bride. And what does the angel do? He shows him the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, at that point, you, I think that we're supposed to say, hmm, I thought, you were going to show him the bride of the lamb and instead you showed him the holy city, Jerusalem. Well, we've already had this experience before. John says, it's not yours. Yes, it is yours. There you go. I hope that wasn't your pacemaker. Oh, yeah, both pacemakers. (laughs) So, anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. So, so one of the elders says to John, back in John chapter 5, I'm going to actually show you the lion of the tribe of Judah. And as the angel goes to show John the lion of the tribe of Judah, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. And so it's not like the angel is uh, is like performing some sleight of hand. What the angel is doing is the angel is revealing to John in that first instance that the line of the tribe of Judah is the lamb of God who's standing as if slain. And here, the wife, the bride of the lamb is the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And she is coming down out of heaven from God Right, so there's this really there's this wonderful um, like wedding imagery, isn't there? She's having the glory of God, and so um, think of it this way. So um, when we do weddings, um, we have the uh, the families they come in, and then we have the bridal party, and they come in, and then what happens? The doors close, right? You, you aware of this? The doors close. And then a different song starts. And what's everybody waiting for? Waiting for those doors to open and for the bride to appear. When that bro- those doors open and that bride appears, what does everybody do? They stand up and they, and they look. Right? We recently, I won't tell you who it is because you'll guess by the time I'm done. She says to me, I don't want everybody standing up when I come in. I'm like, that's just too bad. They're going to do it anyway. I want you to tell them to sit down. No, I'm not going to tell them to sit down. They want to see the bride. Right? You honorary little brat now. <laughs> 
I could talk to that bride that way since I've known her her entire life. Everybody turns to see the bride. And so what we have on an earthly plane is the bride actually coming in to, uh, you know, to come down the aisle to be given away by her father. This wedding, it's not just coming down the aisle. It's coming down out of heaven from God. And so this is, this is quite the glorious entrance, right? This is the glorious entrance. And it says she comes down out of heaven from God and she has the glory of God. And so I, you know, you can't help but to think of texts like Isaiah 61, where uh, Isaiah says, let me get over there real quick. Isaiah 61 not 61, 63, no, not 63, no, 64, no, maybe not 64. What's that? Maybe it's 60. Yes, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And so here is this absolutely beautiful picture for behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness, the peoples, but, uh, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. And so here she has the manifest glory of God, as it were, covering her or on her. And uh, Tom Schreiner makes this beautiful statement. He says, the transcendent and heavenly character of the city is here emphasized, she comes from God. Then her brilliance is described. You end up having this um, in the second part of verse 11, her brilliance, her, her splendor, her, her, uh, her luminousness was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And so here is this absolutely beautiful picture. And um, we've already seen um, this crystal clear jasper back in chapter 4, where you have this throne room uh, uh, picture of heaven, and it is in, in direct connection with the presence and the glory of God himself. And so here she is, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, full of glory, full of splendor, reflecting as it were the very glory of her father. She's now prepared as a bride for her husband. You know, the the beautiful thing about that is that The father prepares this bride and she's a redeemed bride. She's not, as it were, kept pure from the very beginning, stowed away in some convent somewhere waiting for her day. She's a people redeemed. So that what constitutes the city of God 
the bride of the Lamb is people who were guilty of all kinds of sins, stained with all kinds of guilt. And what the Father does is he redeems for his Son a people who one day will be clothed in nothing less than the glory of God. So that is, you know, you can't help but to eagerly wait for that day. Now, the next thing that happens is, um, verse 12, there's this great and high wall, 12 gates, at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and their names written on those 12 gates, and on those 12 gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, why did ancient cities have walls? Protection. Um, You don't really need protection for the new Jerusalem, all right? But walls also were a sign of a city's strength and stability, right? And so here is this this massive wall, and um, for instance, you could, there, there are texts, Isaiah 26, for instance, and then you have the 12 gates. Now, what's cool about that? Well, the vision temple of, of, of Ezekiel 40 to 48, in that temple, there are 12 gates. And each one of those gates has an angel standing there. Now, I, I'll tell you, I thought about this all day, and none of the commentators actually said anything about the angels. And I started thinking, why is, so, all right, so stop and think with me, all right? And we're not going to look for any superscripted B's or anything like that, but let me just, just think with me, all right? So, every gate around the wall has an angel stationed there. If the new Jerusalem is the consummation of Eden, What do you have in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24? You have an angel stationed at the Garden of Eden to do what? To do what Adam failed to do. Guard the garden. Right? That was Adam's job, by the way. Guard the garden. And of course, he did such a good job that he let a snake in. All right? So... Every single gate has an angel stationed to guard the city. It's a beautiful picture. Now, the angels, in a sense, guard the integrity of the city temple. And then you have the 12 tribes written. So there's three gates on the east, three gates on the north, south, and then west. And then you've got the foundation. And then you've got these 12 foundation stones. And the names on the 12 foundation stones are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. All right. Now, let's not get into the weeds and say, okay, well, was Matthias on there or was it Paul or so forth, right? So it, how many apostles are there always going to be? Twelve, all right? Twelve is the number, 
all right? And why is 12 the number? Because of 12 tribes. By the way, do you have sometimes some problems naming the 12 tribes? And the answer is yes, because you have the sons of Joseph and you've got Ephraim and Manasseh. And so do we count them? Do we count Dan, do, right? So, but here's the idea, 12. 12 for Israel, 12 for the apostles, and the 12 apostles are the foundation stones. And if you're reading slowly enough, you might think that's backwards. Who who would you think would be the foundation? It'd be the tribes, don't you think? Right, so if God's building this this, uh, as it were, this cosmic temple. And I mean, who comes first? Well, Israel comes first, right? Well, in a sense, but I think, I think that there's a reason why there's a reversal. And so Greg Beale makes the comment. He says the reversal. So having, having the 12 apostles as foundations, right? And then the 12 tribes as, as the gates of the walls, which obviously sit on top of the foundation. All right. He says the reversal highlights the fulfillment of Israel's promises that have finally come in Christ who together with apostolic witness uh, uh, to his fulfilling work forms the foundation of the new temple, the church, which is the new Israel. So in other words, what, what, what Beale is saying is there's a theological priority in a sense, right? So in, in, in a real sense, what is the very foundation of all of the people of God? Well, it's Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone, right? And so... Here you have this, this amazing city and this spiritual temple, which is the new Jerusalem, which is the people of God. And here's the glorious thing. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, right? So lots of commentators will spend, will spend pages and pages on how many times like 24 people are used for something, right? Well, you have the 24 elders back in Revelation Four, but you've got 24 uh, 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 Levitical singers, you have 24 uh, uh, servants uh, in the temple, so you've got all of these 24s, but here's, here's the bottom line, is that this new Jerusalem is made up of both Jew and Gentile. You have the seed of Abraham that came through the 12 tribes, and you have Gentile nations that came through the preaching of the apostles. Okay? And so in that new Jerusalem, that heavenly city, you end up having, uh, as it were, the fullness of God's people. All right. Well, let's talk about the measurements if we have, if we have time. All right. So verse 15. This is where the New American Standard completely, thoroughly, 110% lets me down. All right. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Couldn't help yourself. So verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. Have we seen that before? Yeah. Back in chapter 11. Oh, and by the way, in Ezekiel 40. Okay. And he's going to measure the city, its gates and its wall. 
all right? Now, the difference is when the, when the city's measured or when the temple's measured back in chapter 11, the outer court is left out, right? So it's just the people of God that are being, well, in a sense, it's the same thing here because now what you have is, is this cosmic new Jerusalem. And so you end up having this very same language in Ezekiel 40 and back in Revelation chapter 11. And so you have, again, um, Beale says, this measuring of the city temple here figuratively represents placing God's boundaries around the city by which it is protected from harm and from the entrance of any form of evil. God as is, in a sense, make, drawing the the boundary lines, who's in, who's out. That line, that measuring line is for protection. Imagine that, a border being for protection. Yeah. What else was for protection in the book of Revelation? What's that? More specifically, when God's people were sealed. They're sealed. Chapter 7, chapter 14, they're sealed. That is, they have God's protection upon them. So the measuring is not just to tell you how big it is. Okay. It's God actually, as it were, drawing out the, as it were, the boundary lines. Now, here's the interesting thing. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width, all right? So he measures the city, and you know what the New American Standard does? The New American Standard, it, it, this, is, this is so bad. The city's laid out as a square, verse 16, and its length is as great as its width, and he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. All right, so let's get this straight at least. The city's a cube. Okay? It's a cube. What's the problem with the New American Standard actually telling you what 12,000 stadia translates into miles? You lose the symbolism of 12 times a thousand. (laughs) Do we really think that the new Jerusalem is going to be measured in miles? So it's kind of silly, actually, to translate 12,000 stadia to 15,000 miles or 1,500 miles. The net Bible actually says 1,400 miles. So I don't know which one it actually is in terms of miles. But here's the thing, is that it's 12,000 stadia. How's the number 12 any significance in the book of Revelation? Does, do, do derivations of the number 12 have any significance in the book of Revelation? 
What about a thousand? Does it have any significance in the book of Revelation? And so here's the, here's the crazy thing is that, is that the only reason you would translate, right? Or let's say convert, that's actually better language. The only reason you would convert 12,000 stadia into miles is if you're thinking of of a literal physical location that is measured in terms of linear miles. It doesn't matter. Seriously, it doesn't matter. King James, a furlong. Ask Vic Rice what a furlong is. I'm sure he'll be able to tell you. Now, so Tom Schreiner, by the way, by the way, the, the ESV does say 12,000 stadia, all right? So Tom Schreiner says, converting into miles or yards, etc., cetera, is a, is a mistake because it obscures the symbolism of the number 12 multiplied by 1,000. So the city is, is cubic. Well, guess what else was cubic? The Holy of Holies, 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. So the Holy of Holies is a cube. And the new Jerusalem is a cube. Right? Are you you tracking? All right. This might even make you like geometry just a little bit. The entire universe, says Tom Schreiner, is like the most holy place of the temple. And so then, of course, NAS goes on and, uh, and he measured its wall, 72 yards <laughs> to human measurement, which are also angelic measurement. Now, let me just say, so 72 yards. Mm. Uh, New Living Translation will tell us 216 feet. Okay. What is it? It's 144 cubits. Any significance with 144? 144. This is, this is, this doesn't even take particularly sharp thinking to just notice that 144 play and derivative. So 144 is derivative 12. Obviously, I'm not good in math, but I know at least that much, right? And so 144,000 back in Revelation chapter 7. And so here, what is, what is the idea is that that, that wall represents, in a, as a, in a sense, the completeness, the fullness of God's people. By the way, back in Zechariah, what God tells Jerusalem is, I'm going to be like a wall of fire around you, and I'll be glory in your midst. Okay. So, he says, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements, so instead of, in a sense, asserting at this point some kind of literalism like, oh, I guess what that means is that human uh, uh, fat max uh, tape measures are the same kind that angels use. 12 inches to a foot. So we got 12 inches to a foot. The angels, 
must use the same kind of Stanley tape measures that we do. That is not the point. The point is, is the picture of measuring is an everyday human event measuring, but it's also angelic, which means it's heavenly. And so again, Tom Schreiner says the symbolism is even clearer from the next statement, for John says the 144 cubits is a human measurement, but also the measurement of the angel. Referring to the measurement of angels is very strange. John does not expect the reader to say, of course, that makes sense. It's the measurement angels use. Instead, by appealing to the measurement employed by angels, he's signaling to his readers that this is symbolism. None of us knows angelic measure, right? And so here is this picture of this this beautiful city on a high mountain. Thick walls. And it's his people. Glory is in her midst. Does that that do anything as you read, let's say, the Psalms? Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. Does it do anything as we read the prophecies of Isaiah? Say, in that day, the nations will stream to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And the whole earth will be filled with his glory. So, are we right now the new Jerusalem? Yep. Galatians 4, Hebrews 12. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the mediator of a new and better covenant and to blood which speaks better than Abel. Is that new Jerusalem consummated in her glory? Not hardly. In fact, sometimes you think of it like this. Sometimes the bride in this world, we might be tempted to think, how in the world could this bride of Christ ever be beautiful like that? Are there a lot of um, wrinkles on the bride right now? A lot of stains? A lot of shortcomings? We're not the bride that that we should be, right? But remember, the Father's preparing us for that day. 
And one of these days, every stain will be completely gone. And will be blameless without spot or wrinkle. And the best part is that God himself will walk among us. And so I look forward to that day when that new Jerusalem, the bride of the wife of the Lamb, comes down out of heaven from God, clothed in brilliance and glory. Okay. And so, you know what that means? It means don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the church. Don't, don't think, you know what? These people, ick, ugh, right? Well, for every ick and ugh you have for other people, you've got three or four icks and uggs for yourself if you've got eyes to see them, okay? But you don't give up on the church, it's not campus crusade that comes down out of heaven prepared as a bride for her husband. Okay? It's the church. And so you love the church. You labor for the church. You put the gospel into practice for the church. You put Jesus on display by loving each other, forgiving each other, serving each other. You can't be shocked when, when you're sinned against. Okay? You can't. I mean, if you went to church like with perfect people, you know, Spurgeon said if you found a perfect church, you shouldn't go there, you'd ruin it. Okay? But we, we're not blameless now, but one day we will be. And so what a, what a day that will be. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this picture that gives us so much hope and encouragement. Father, how we thank you for reminding us of our glorious future. And Father, I, I don't know about everyone else here, but I know that wake up day after day and it's hard to see your glory. And it's easy for Jesus to have other rivals. But we pray that we'd be able to say, even as the psalmist, one thing I've asked from the Lord that I would seek that I would dwell in the temple of God and behold his beauty. Father, remind us not only of our glorious bridegroom, but remind us of the beauty and the glory of the bride. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.
www.thebigfoot.com.